This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, science journalist Amina Khan is joined in conversation by Ariane Gelardin, a curator at Storefront Lab, to discuss what nature can teach us about sustainable technology and innovation. This talk was recorded on April 21st, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thanks for coming, everyone. Um, I would just like to start by explaining how I am arriving at this talk. Um, I, I come from the arts, I'm a curator and a designer, and I'm really interested in using the arts as a tool to communicate across disciplines. So it's not necessarily art for art's sake, but it's using art as a means to um, expand one's thinking and one's understanding of how things work. Um, so, so that's my background and that's my interest in the writing that you have done. Yeah, um, and maybe you can just describe a little bit of how you arrived as a science writer. Yeah, so um, this book was probably, uh, the seed of it came out of this uh, conference in fluid dynamics that I went to and wrote about for the LA Times. And I know before you get all bored or whatever, it's, uh, <laughs> okay, so we've got one fan of fluid dynamics in the audience. Pretty great. Two. Oh, two. <laughs> so three thumbs up so far. Um, I, you know, I've done a lot of cool things for the Times, been lucky to go to the dark matter detector, been lucky to be in, you know, uh, on, at JPL when uh, Curiosity landed, um, gone up to Northern California and fallen down ravines looking for carnivorous plants. So like, I was not really excited about going to this conference, but I rolled in and there was like this poster in the poster session of the great red spot and the dynamics of the great red spot. And like almost right next to it was another poster on the uh, dynamics of milk as it drops into English tea. And you're like, oh my God, we know just as little about like an everyday like mug of tea as we do about a super storm on a gas giant like millions upon millions of miles away. That's pretty crazy. So that really sort of brought um, brought to um, the front of my mind the idea that like we really don't know that much about like the basic physics and chemistry that defines our everyday lives. Like we take them for granted. We've split the atom. We've like we look at quarks. We found the Higgs boson. But like really, there's a lot of sort of like complex physics right at our fingertips that we just don't fully understand yet. And um, the other thing about that conference was there were all of these physicists and engineers studying biology. And um, I was talking to some scientists there and they were like, yeah, this is fairly new in that like the ex it's been an exponential growth curve over the years. People have been increasingly interested in this. So there were people who were studying, you know, flying snakes and those do exist, but they don't exist here. So don't worry. Um, and there were people studying how um, living ants act like um, fluids, but dead ants don't. And, you know, the, the rules that might govern that kind of movement. Um, and there were people who were studying how could you make a plane, a plane that actually looks a little bit more like a bird 
and you're like, oh, planes don't look like birds. I totally thought they did. They don't actually. The, like how they operate, how they fly is completely separate. So there are all these ways that people were looking to nature to solve all kinds of interesting um, engineering problems and just to try and understand basic physics um, on a more fundamental level and also chemistry and nanotechnology. I mean, all of these things were domains that like nature has been working on for nearly like four billion years, right? Um, on the molecular level. It's got this tinker called natural selection, right? So you got a lot of chances to get it wrong and sometimes you get it right. And you have a lot more time than human engineers and scientists have had to figure that sort of stuff out. So um, a lot of these guys are starting to think, hey, why don't we learn from at least some of these examples? So that's, that's sort of how that got started. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, I'm just going to read the subtitle of your book. It's so long. I'm so sorry. No, it's fantastic. It deserves its own chapter. <laughs> so we have Adapt, How Humans Are Tapping Into Nature's Secrets to Design and Build a Better Future. And I just want to point out that you didn't use the terms bio-inspired or biomimicry, which I understand seems to be kind of outdated in some ways. So, yeah. Maybe you can describe the difference between those two? Sure. Um, I, I will try. The, the problem is, it's one of those things where certain people will use the term biomimicry and mean one thing, and certain people will use it and come from a totally different perspective. And then certain other people have come and tried to pull in the term bio-inspired design as kind of a response to it not being biomimicry for them for their definition of what biomimicry is. So it's a little difficult. Biomimicry was coined by um, this woman named Janine Benyus, and she's actually, um, uh, she wrote a book in uh, the 1990s that uh, really helped to uh, frame a lot of what I think scientists were doing in little pockets, like studying nature in these random weird ways, getting funding however they could to, you know, study the glue in in uh, made by mussels, for example, and what you could sort of learn from that, like all kinds of random stuff like that. So she really looked at um, that and sort of framed it for the first time, and I think it really started to take off after that. So it's a very popular and very well known term, um, but there are also some scientists, and, and I should say the definition more or less is basically trying to uh, learn from, understand, but essentially kind of mimic natural systems um, for one purpose or another. A bio-inspired, a person who says that they are a bio-inspired engineer, that they're interested in bio-inspired design, is is uh, sometimes, a, there's, there's two different types of people, right? There's, there's people who think that a lot of people who perform biomimicry um, take systems too literally and don't pull out the uh, principles, like scientific principles, and apply them in an intelligent way. They're just mimicking it for the sake of mimicking it. Like putting feathers on a plane because you're like, oh, a bird does has feathers, so we're going to stick it on there. Like there's, it's that sort of um, sense of biomimicry that they respond to and they say, well, I, my stuff is biologically inspired. There's also other people who I think just like to take um, inspiration from nature and uh, aren't necessarily going to uh, keep digging down into the science. And some of them might say that, you know, this is biologically inspired. Like there's a mall in Zimbabwe that you might say is um, biologically inspired. It's inspired by termite mounds. Uh, it turns out how termite mounds work may not essentially be the way that this mall works, but it's still inspired by nature. So. These definitions are fluid to some degree. I don't know. 
I didn't get a sense from talking to all these different scientists that there was an agreed upon definition of um, any of these things. And there's also people who, st who stick to the term biomimicry because they think those kinds of bio-inspired um, adherents are a little too lax. That's, that's sort of been my, my sense of things. So it's a little complicated, but biomimicry is probably a more recognizable term. Bio-inspired engineering and design, I think, has been getting a little bit more traction in recent years. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the opening chapter of your book is a really good example of maybe the drawbacks of trying to mimic nature mm. too literally. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the first chapter, um, you talk about how in 2004, I believe it was, the US military spent $5 billion researching and developing this this um, camouflage garment that soldiers would wear. It was called the universal camouflage pattern. And essentially it was a green, blue, pixelated pattern. And it completely failed because um, the soldiers were still visible. And maybe you can just describe a little bit um, what was wrong with that understanding of camouflage and, and, and what, what, they, what they missed. Yeah. Um you know, that was a complicated situation, and I, I don't think I'll ever fully understand the politics or budgetary reasons or whatever else went into that decision, but um, because there were a lot of different camouflage patterns that were available by a lot of different companies, and it turned out there was one that had been available before UCP was developed, universal camouflage pattern was developed, um, that probably would have done the job just fine. But this one had an, an issue with uh, what was called, um, I'm forgetting the term, isoluminance, right? Where a pattern is so small that like all of its components sort of tend to blend together. And if you have a light colored pattern with light colored two small elements, then you've got a light colored silhouette because of isoluminance. And then, you know, you're in the desert and you are sticking out like a sore thumb. You look like a beacon, you know? So it's, uh, that's deeply problematic if you're trying to stay hidden. So um, there's some interesting lessons that could be learned from there, but didn't seem to be taken into account until people started getting shot at. And uh, one of the people that was getting shot at was this guy named Kit Parker, who is a scientist at Harvard. And he decided that he wanted to learn something about the material properties of an animal like the cuttlefish, which is really, really good at, um, at camouflage, and try and see if maybe one day he could weave that into fabrics, for example. So, but right now we're at very, very basic level. So what he did with um, a, a biologist and um, a few other scientists um, was to try and study that on a, like, a nanoscale level, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So what I took away from from this description is that camouflage. We think of it as color matching, I think, or, or yeah. texture matching, but really it's an issue of scale. And so maybe you can describe how the cuttlefish, um, what parts of its visual environment it's taking in, and how it translates that onto its own body. Yeah. There's been um, a scientist and. Kit Parker worked with this guy for his particular study, but this scientist has been doing separately his own research for the sake of just understanding the cuttlefish, not necessarily any military reasons. But um, I think the work, I think that the work that he has could have um, a lot of interesting implications for camouflage down the road. And the reasons are that the cuttlefish is a really, really interesting animal. I mean, I wish, 
I wish I could fully do justice to what a weird creature it looks like. It's got all these tentacles hanging out of his face. It's not as well known as the octopus because it's not around the Americas, but it can change the texture of its skin to like match objects around it. It can um, do all of these amazing colors and stripes and patterns. Um, it can even actually hypnotize its prey. It looks like it's like a Las Vegas marquee. It does these like <laughs> boom, 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 these sort of like light shows and the crab is just staring at it and it just goes pow. It's pretty great. Um, so it can do all of these different things with, with this amazing skin that it has. Um, but you would, it would be a mistake to think that it's actually just trying to mimic its environment perfectly. What it's actually doing is relying on a few, well, what Roger Hanlon thinks is happening is it's relying on a few basic pattern templates, right? There's like a sandy modeled pattern. There's um, the sort of coarser grained pattern. And then there's like this very disruptive pattern that breaks up what the eye can see, right? And you see this in all kinds of camouflage. It's the same principle, like why a tiger, you know, it stripes off and cut off at um, like around the ankle so that you cannot as predator or prey, right? You can't recognize that profile immediately. So what it's actually doing is tricking the brain rather than fooling the eye, which is um, a really interesting thing to think about when you're thinking about camouflage. You actually don't need to do as much as you think you need to do, you know? You do not need to look perfectly like your surroundings. You just need to mess with um, a viewer's brain. Um, and that's uh, a really interesting thing. Um, and you, you'd totally not believe it looking at the cuttlefish and what it can do, but the cuttlefish is actually colorblind. So all these like amazing colors it can create, you're just like, how is it doing that? People are still trying to figure that out. Like, are they sensing color some other way? Are there like these uh, proteins called opsins in its skin that are able to sense that? So they're still trying to like figure that out because it seems inconceivable that an animal that is so good at disguising itself with all these different colors would not necessarily be able to see any color basically beyond like a certain wavelength of green or like wavelength band of greens. But um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at camouflage. It's really less about the eyes and it's more about the brain. Mm -hmm. And just to, to support that, that point, I'm just going to read this quote from the chapter. The cuttlefish's disruptive pattern, while its dramatic coloring might attract attention, takes advantage of our brain's search for outlines. It creates false borders, forcing our brain to divvy up an object incorrectly and thus miss the profiles of the animal entirely. So if I can give an example using us, we have some, some framed drawings behind us. They're black and white drawings with white frames on a white wall. So if, I, if we were cuttlefish, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be white. We would actually, you know, maybe two-thirds of our body would be white, and we might have a dark gray line cutting, you know, down our face and down our shoulder, which, you know, may act as the shadow on the picture frame. And so what that's doing is it's breaking us up into two bodies or three bodies so that someone sitting in the back row doesn't actually see a, an individual person. They see multiple objects. Is that kind of a good analogy as to what the cuttlefish is 
attempting to you do. You could even say as a human you could do that. Roger Hanlon actually had these art classes um, where he would have different uh, students try and demonstrate uh, camouflage. And one of them actually painted her entire body all these different patches, mm -hmm. thus breaking up her profile. I think she got an A on that. <laughs> but the, the idea was to create a background and then find a way to blend in with it, but not to do it exactly. And so she did it by breaking it up. Not necessarily the same colors, but just enough to screw with people. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are actually a couple contemporary artists, I forget their names, but they, they are putting on these um, facial recognition um, determent um, workshops where they teach you to do face paint so that a security camera can't recognize your identity. And they basically, once you have this face paint on, you look like a Picasso drawing. You know, your nose kind of comes down the side of your face and everything is mixed up. So that's, that's the artistic version of the cuttlefish. Seems very useful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, more and more so. <laughs> the next example from your book that I want to talk about is termites. So endlessly fascinating. Um, so in, in the cuttlefish chapter, we talk about tr uh, tricking the brain. Um, this next example you, talks about the brain in a very different way, a brain made of many organisms that work together in a complex, in a complex feedback loop, mm -hmm. um, which ultimately enables them to adapt to ex changing external conditions. So... Um, you describe how termite mounds are brilliantly designed to stay cool in arid climates. Um, so before we get into talking about the mechanics of a termite mound, I wonder if you can just give us like a very rudimentary um, explanation of how basic air conditioning works. Oh man, that's a good question. Well, air conditioning usually relies on uh, uh, circulating air, often old air, it's filtered, but you know, really depends on the quality of your filter. And what it's doing is managing moisture in your environment. And it is in the managing of that moisture that they actually manage to keep the heat down, for example. So uh, it's not really about adding more heat, heat or like adding in more cold or taking out more heat, I should say. It's about managing that that moisture and the termite mound actually manages to do this because it cooperates with uh, a fungus. Um, it's, it's not always a perfect relationship because these creatures are in competition with each other for resources within the mound, but by and large, this uh, fungal comb uh, that the termites actually end up building upon and feeding just enough um, can manage moisture in a really, really interesting way. Like when it gets up to like, I think a certain humidity level, it starts um, uh, keep holding on to all of the moisture, if I'm remembering correctly. And if it uh, gets below a certain point, it starts releasing moisture into the air. So it sort of does the opposite of what you think a material might do. Um, and so scientists are actually trying to understand how it does this and then maybe mimic it somehow. Because if you could, say, paint that onto like the walls in a building, you might be able to just allow passive control of the moisture in the environment and thus the temperature. Um, in a much smarter way. So that's one of the things that they're, that they're studying. It kind of reminds me of human perspiration, you know, oh, yeah. like we, we sweat to regulate our own body temperature. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Totally. You also uh, use, use the analogy of a heart-lung. Yeah, the heart-lung. Um, 
there are a lot of different analogies for uh, what was going on in a termite mound, and some of them are correct and, and some of them are, are not. But uh, you, you could see the termite mound as a sort of living organ that uh, tries to circulate not, oh, here, I should actually start more from the beginning. People used to think that the termite mound, a lot of them have these like giant stacks. They're like six feet tall, right? And some of them have these chimneys in the middle. So people thought, oh, well, this is just like the stack effect in a building. You're just trying to like get all of that hot air to rise through it, and that's how you regulate temperature. Well, it turns out that's not exactly what was going on. Um, the scientist named Scott Turner out of New York, he realized that what was probably going on was that they're regulating the oxygen intake and, and they're flushing out carbon dioxide in the system. So there's a whole nother mechanism at play. But he realized that actually after this architect named Mick Pierce had designed an entire Eastgate shopping center in Zimbabwe inspired by the stack effect and inspired by the termite and his perceived use of, uh, and his perceived uh, his perception that the termites actually use the stack effect. So uh, it's an interesting example of how, as the science changes, um, do you change the story or do you just sort of be like, oh, well, that was inspired, now we move on. But um, there's a lot of interesting uh, comparisons to organs when you think about um, a termite mound, right? Um, it, it, it seems like a body, right? And it seems like something that self-regulates like a body does. And, and yet, it's made up of all these little bodies all doing their own thing. Um, how, do you, how do you sort of, are you, so as a scientist, should you be looking at it from the top down, like seeing it as like a, a whole, or should you be studying the individuals within that nest and see how they interact and then try and study those rules and what system emerges out of that perceived chaos? So like, do you wanna study it from the bottom up or the top down? Uh, the scientists that I talked to basically were trying to get together so they could do it um, both ways, I guess you would say. Some studied it from the top down, others from the bottom up, and they kind of intellectually met in the middle, I guess. So um, it's, uh, it's really interesting, especially when you think about um, these swarming insects like termites and also ants um, and wasps as uh, swarm intelligences, right? So they're not just, you, can't, you don't have to just see them as bodies, you can also see them as like thinking creatures as a whole colony. So um, the heart-lung thing, you know, it's sort of like a, it's like an entry point onto that, onto that idea. Right. And so what I'm understanding is that it's not just about material intelligence. It's not just about um, the soil and the fungus and the air and the temperature, but it's also about process and kind of like a, a dynamic live or real-time feedback loop. Oh, yeah. And so if we compare this to human systems, such as architecture, we find a really big problem actually where you know um, conventional architecture you know you'll sit down you'll draft out your plan you'll think of every possible scenario and you will design something universal that will hopefully hit as many of those challenges as possible but in the case of the termites they're constantly um, making mistakes and repairing those or changing their mind, changing their direction. And so in your book, you describe how really maybe there's a better process that architects and builders can use to create intelligent buildings. Right, yeah. I mean, if you think about termites, the way that they build is as in tune with their environment as it can possibly be, right? 
um, because they're responding to the soil moisture, they're responding to the direction of the sun, they're responding to the wind, they're responding to everything in real time. And it, like you said, as those things change, um, they can change their building. So the decision-making process as it happens is not perfect, like mistakes are made, but the end result is as optimized as it can be for the environment at that moment. Um, you can't always say that about um, a house that you might build before necessarily knowing what all of the environmental factors are. Maybe you missed one or if they change, right? So um, it's it might be a, a smarter way to build. It might not be a mo the most efficient way to build, but it would probably end up being um, best for the inhabitants of that building in the end. So that's the thought, and there's a guy named Rupert Soar who um, is a professor um, uh, in England, and he's been thinking about this a lot. He works on like 3D printing, he thinks about you know, large-scale 3D printing, and he's really interested in the idea of building like an emergent system rather than like a, a prefabbed uh, structure. And he was with uh, Scott Turner in Namibia, which is where um, he and a few other scientists were getting together to study um, the termite mounds from all these different angles. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this idea of emergent systems, that's a really great um, description. Um, essentially, you, instead of trying to anticipate every possible scenario, you, you create a set of algorithms that will run through them um, and, and enable you to kind of quickly change course as things come up in real time. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. Yeah. And there's actually people at Harvard who have built robots, like very rudimentary, but termite-inspired robots with the idea that like maybe eventually you could take these robots and throw them into a disaster zone and they could quickly build you um, a dam of some kind, right? They could respond to the environment in hand and, and do something for you. So there are people who are thinking about that um, already, but uh, it's still a long way to go. Good ideas often take a little bit of, a little bit of cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so in, in your other chapter about ants, I love this chapter so much, it's so fascinating. Um, you talk about, there's a lot of kind of like philosophical uh, issues that come up with how um, ant colonies work. Maybe we can just begin by describing generally how, how they work together to create, I think you call it a super organism. Yeah, I mean, so there's a little bit of overlap with the termites, right? But, I mean, I was approaching the termites from a slightly different angle. I mean, the interesting thing about ants is that they... Okay, well, this is this is something I'll touch upon because I think it's really interesting. I, I didn't touch upon it too much in the book, but what what's interesting to me about ants is the more primitive ants, they know... They have a lot of senses, right? They can see a lot. They have big brains. Um, they're actually pretty smart, but the more advanced ants, and they, I should say these ants, the, the primitive ones, live in very small colonies, like very, very few. I don't know, probably like a dozen, like maybe a few hundred. The advanced ones that you might know, they live in colonies of you know tens of thousands, maybe even millions, and they actually are very, very stupid, and they're often nearly blind, and they basically only communicate with each other by like, I don't know, hitting each other in the butt, going, hey, hey, or like, you know, exchanging inf information via their antennae, and they're mostly like, yes, no, if this, then that, if that, then this. Um, and so they're not very smart, and yet they are so sophisticated when you see their behavior as a whole. Um, so it's a really interesting thing where like the more 
the more dense your environment is with people, the more stimuli you have, the more like the individuals actually have to pare down the sensory information they can take in and the fewer decisions they should be allowed to make. And yet, even with that very, very little information, you create these sophisticated systems. Um, but in smaller systems with fewer individuals, those dis individuals can have greater decision-making power. Um, they might be less sophisticated systems overall. The individuals themselves are sophisticated. So the question is like, where do you want your sophistication? Do you want it in the system overall or do you want it in the individuals that are running it? So it's an, it's an interesting contrast there. Either way, you end up with a fairly intelligent system. But if you want like a really large system and you need it to operate, you kind of actually need your units to be relatively dumb, which is kind of funny. Right. So what does that mean in terms of humanity where we, you know, now live on a global scale and we all have the internet and we're aware of everything that's, or we think we're aware that of everything that's happening at any given moment. Does that mean we would function more efficiently if we were kind of dumb? I don't know. I don't, when I ever <laughs> see a menu and I have too many choices, I totally freak out. So maybe if you just had like five things on menu, I'd be like, yes, I can choose one out of these five things. So, I mean, I feel like we all have like a visceral understanding of that. Like sometimes too many choices is a bad thing. Sometimes too much information is a bad thing. But um, for like an actual serious situation, like the future of humanity, I don't know. Like it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, there, there are scientists who actually, who have studied swarming insects, like wasps and ants, and they're moving to studying humans because they want to see if they can learn to pass on information in good ways the way that, you know, ants do. Um, because humans are really, really bad at passing along good information, as I think we've probably found out in recent months. So there's, there's one experiment this guy did where he would have these um, groups of people estimate something like, for example, I mean, beans in a jar, right? And you averaged all the responses and they get pretty close to the actual answer. But if you allowed them to talk amongst each other and then come up with their responses, they would be wildly off, right? So somebody is spreading bad information and people are taking it in. And ants and termites are very good at if like one guy, one little ant goes rogue and starts leading other people to, you know, a bad place to forage or if like a termite is, um, you know, pushing along and getting others to build all kinds of really wonky tunnels. They have these systems where they can tamp down that bad information and correct it eventually. I mean, like I said, it's an imperfect system, right? Constantly responding to this changing environment and also changes within the termite decisions overall themselves. But they end up getting to a good solution. So how do we get our human groups to do the same thing, to self-correct before it's too late? So uh, I don't really have any answers just yet. They don't have any answers either, but they're, they're looking into it. So stay tuned. I'm actually really curious about um, what it's like to be out in the field with these researchers. And, you know, they, you know, they've obviously been studying ant colonies for many, many years. Like, they have a very intimate relationship, and it's almost like a personality in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Do they, do they express their kind of... Um, moral opinions about this other species? I, I don't know. I mean, I think the scientists themselves are like, they really love the animals that they work with, but they're not always super sentimental about them, if that makes sense. Like they're completely fascinated by the way that they work and they act. I mean, I watched like three or four scientists just like watch a termite try to 
grab a stick and pull it into a hole. And it was like watching like five sportscasters at once, like trying to describe what was going to happen. Oh, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And then the other guy was like, nope, he shouldn't have pulled, you know, he shouldn't, he should have cut it shorter. Stupid guy. And he walked off. And then like later on, the termite actually managed to do it. And the guy's like, yeah, that termite was smarter than you. So, you know, they, they get really, really excited about just like the silliest things, even though they've been studying it for, for so long. So, um, and they all have like a really, really good working relationship. There's certainly a bunch, scientists have personalities, right? So they all have their own approaches and opinions. Um, and it's funny to see them come together and look at the same events and, and come up with different ideas about what could happen or what is happening. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. There was another moment in the chapter about termites where I'm going to ask you to describe it because I'm going to botch it. But I'll probably botch it. There, <laughs> there was a moment where the they're kind of um, um, taking apart the the mound, and some kids from the neighborhood come, and the the in the kind of usually unseen part of the mound is surfaces, and everyone just kind of stands there in awe of this incredible kind of like network of, I don't even remember what the material, I guess the fungal the fungus, combs, yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe you can describe that, that day. Yeah, it's funny. So this was at a crocodile farm in Namibia. Um, they, the owners of the crocodile farm actually wanted to get rid of this termite mound because it was an eyesore. And so Scott Turner and his colleagues were like, hey, well, we want to look inside one. So how about we just come and watch you guys bulldoze it? Just bulldoze half of it so we can see what's inside and maybe grab some of that fungal comb that we're so interested in because of the air conditioning thing I mentioned earlier. So uh, they went and did that, uh, and this guy, um, I think his name was Andre Pitou, he's like this big, burly Afrikaner who was like operating the, uh, the, the bulldozer, and uh, even he ends up coming out along with these kids who were sort of watching nearby because they'd never seen the inside of one before. And he is also fascinated by what's going on. And he starts asking all these really, really good questions. And he's like picking up the fungal comb. And, you know, the scientists are like, well, careful, those termites, because cr they're crawling all over. And I can tell you, termite bites are not fun. Like, you don't see them bite you, but it's like the sharpest needle like you can possibly imagine. And so they're crawling all over. And he's like, careful, they'll bite. And he's like, well, we have crocodiles here. They also bite. Ha, ha, ha. And then he like grabs like a bunch of the fungal comb. And he's like, what does it taste like? And then he actually licks the fungal comb. Uh, Scott Turner was impressed and was like, well, if you want to be, if you ever want to work for us, <laughs> let me know. Uh, the, the fungal comb tasted like moldy paper towel, which seems pretty accurate because that's basically what it is. It's like mushed up tree bark and it's a fungus. So, you know, moldy paper towel. So um, it's a lot of really cool stuff like that um, happens when you're watching scientists in the wild and it sort of tends to get you, you don't get to see that in the paper, for, usually, for example. I mean, sometimes in the supplementary information, they'll tell you cool stuff like that, but they don't even notice how cool it is um, because they're so excited by their results, right? So um, that, was, that, was, that was a really fun one, and it's really interesting to see the way that they... Um, the way that when they open up that mound for the first time, they actually open up the science to other people around them, too, in a really real way. Mm -hmm. So that's another really interesting... Thing is the interface with science and the general public. And um, I want to ask you about, you know, what's important about general understanding of these um, scientific studies? You know, there's one thing to just be in your lab and understand it for yourself, but why is it important to kind of transcend um, disciplines and, and reach a public audience? 
Yeah, I think, so, I mean, as these scientists do their work, I mean, people are starting to realize, you know, practitioners of biomimicry who aren't necessarily scientists but are interested in bringing it into practice one way or another, whether it's in architecture or material science or in building new devices, um, they're starting to realize that you really need to get people involved and understand what the, the, the true um, potential of it is. Um, and it's, it's sometimes difficult for, for scientists to do. Um, even though they understand that, you know, if you start to build like nature, you can actually create environments that are healthier, both for the surrounding environment as well as for the humans who live in it. Um, you can create better materials that work inside the body in safer ways for longer. I mean, you can do, you can create um, clean, renewable fuels like the leaf does, which a lot of scientists are working on. So there's all of these different applications that could make our lives so much better on like the nanoscale all the way up to like how we design our cities and how we plan our businesses. So, um, but that's a big, that's a big thing to bite off and chew, right? That's basically like, you have to incorporate this in every aspect of, of your life. So, and, and your practice and you know, your industry. So, um, people tend to focus on like one or two examples. Um, the cuttlefish is a really cool one, for example, but you know, the, the truth is, um, it's, it's difficult for people to absorb more than that. So I think the practitioners do a, a decent job and journalists hopefully do a decent job. Not me, but like this is science, you know, science writers are really, really interested in this kind of topic. Try to sort of show in individual examples what the true applications could be um, so that the scientists can go back to their work and keep finding cool new things to maybe apply later down the line. Yeah. I feel like there's um, there's a really important role for creative people, artists and writers, to play in the kind of mediation of the research and and um, how that might apply to other uh, genres. Totally. Um, you know, it's it's very much about how you frame a body of research. You know, what story you're telling, and I wonder if you can come up with any of your own. Your own exam, you know, your own experiences of um, how the way you frame a story um, affects the way um, the audience understands understands it. Huh, that's a good one. I mean, the first one that springs to mind, it might not be the best example, but uh, I have this chapter on legged robots, and you're like, oh, that's hilarious, Star Wars, like, who cares, right? Like, this is just a prop. Like, we have wheels. They've worked really well. Why reinvent it? Um, but the, the truth is wheels can't necessarily go into disaster zones, right? Wheels can't explore planets all that well. Um, they break down all the time, as we've seen with the Curiosity rover and with the rovers that came before it. So if you start by uh, trying to talk a little bit about the applications and like what what lies in the future and like where this could really go I think that gets people really excited the problem is scientists get really worried because they're like you're overselling things we're not there yet we have to do all of this research before we can even get to think about that point right so they're thinking about that but they're afraid of vocalizing it because they don't want things to get blown out of proportion so there's like a vast gap between like um, storytellers and practitioners or people who want to to you know, implement biomimicry and bioinspired design and the scientists who are doing the work. And so the struggle is to try and make sure that people understand and are excited about those applications, but 
um, don't get impatient when they don't happen immediately because obviously we're in a culture of instant gratification and so it's like, why, why hasn't this happened already? Why hasn't this happened now? Um, and like I said, we truly don't understand as much about nature as we think we do. So it's still going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. A lot of the things that hold us back often are our own assumptions about nature. And so it takes time to unravel those so that you can move forward and truly understand um, what is at play in a given system or a given material or um, a, you know any sort of living thing. So There's a really great example in one of the later chapters about, I'm, I forget his name, but um, he's in the carpet Oh, business, yeah. mm -hmm. and he spent a huge part of his career trying to tell the sustainability story of like a, a green carpet brand, and he just was like missing it and just not moving forward, not moving past a certain point. And then he suddenly started to tell it in economic terms, yeah, right? And yeah. um, maybe you can describe how his practice changed, and he started using. Um, uh, more of like a patchwork pattern, which had to do with the economy of material and uh, yeah, yeah. use. So there were, there were two different business people that um, I talked about in the last chapter, because the last chapter talks a little bit about cities and how we can build them like ecosystems. But the truth is that's really, really hard to do. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy. So some of the most interesting innovations may actually come from businesses that you know, take it to heart and really start to show that there can be a model for doing this well and even doing this profitably. So um, there's a couple of different people. One was the founder of um, a company known as Interface, um, which makes modular carpet. The other one is um, a uh, designer, an engineer who founded a company that makes plastic parts. And uh, I know he makes plastic parts and the other guy makes carpets. They're, neither of them are the most like ecologically friendly industries. But uh, the plastics guy, and I'm completely blanking on his name right now, but he's great. He's in New York. Um, he's still around. Uh, and he uh, built his own wind turbine like on his land. He's super into clean energy. And he started to try and really think about applying um, uh, bio-inspiration to his uh, company, like trying to find ways to um, uh, apply like principles of say a leaf and how it you know transmits uh, heat right or how it gets rid of excess heat to his plastic making process. Um, so he's done a lot of interesting work and he's actually managed to make it pretty pretty profitable for himself. He gets his his products out faster than his competition, which means they come to him more and more. So he's like, it's worked out for me. But for a long time, he was actually uh, what he would do is is go to these these like investors and be like, hey, I want to do this. Like, it's really good for the environment. And he was like, I was just coming off as like a Birkenstock wearing hippie is what is what he would call himself. And he realized that he really needed to appeal to the money factor that this saves money. And so then I asked him, well, well, now that you have all of these techniques, which I detail in the book, that actually w are inspired by nature and that work. I mean, do you tell your clients? And he's like, actually, I, I don't. Like, I don't want to freak them out. So he uses them, but he doesn't necessarily tell the clients so that they don't draw any, like, conclusions about, oh, okay, well, then he's not going to respect my bottom line if he's worried about the environment. And there's another guy um, who founded this company called Interface, and he was this Georgia, um, you know, corporate dude who... Uh, didn't know anything about the environment. And then his you know, marketing team was like, oh, we need you to, this was in the 90s or something. They, we need you to give like a talk about the environment. And he was like, well, I don't know anything about the environment. So in, in a panic, he read this book um, and it told him that he, uh, it, the thing that he got out of it was that like 
oh my God, like I am pulling from the environment now and my grandchildren are the ones who are going to be able, who are going to be paying the price later, right? Like I am taking and taking and taking and taking and leaving a terrible legacy for those that will follow me. And so he had this crazy epiphany and then he was like, I'm going to change the way I do business. And one of the first things he did was go back to his team and be like, I uh, need you to start thinking about things a little bit differently. And uh, one of the things he had them do was go and go out into the forest and take a walk. And they were not super happy about this. They were like, what is going on? Uh, we do carpets, not forests. And they obliged him because he was their boss. And they walked around and they started to notice all of these random patterns um, that they would see in the leaf cover. And they were like, oh, it's so interesting because it looks like a, pa excuse me, a pattern and it's pleasing to the eye, but it's completely random. So what if we design our carpets like that? That ended up actually saving them a ton of money because it meant that they didn't have to have as much overstock. They didn't have to try and perfectly color match things. Um, their uh, clients didn't have to buy a ton of extras and they didn't have to worry that once some wore out, if you put in a new one, that they wouldn't match because one was old and one was new. So it ended up uh, actually revolutionizing the, the carpet design industry for modular carpets. Um, and it uh, made them a heck of a lot of money. So he has since passed away, but uh, his company continues on and they really think about this stuff. And one, one thing one of the representatives of the company told me was like, yeah, you know, we, we have made a lot of money off of biomimicry, so we are not complaining. So the question really is, there are, the examples are out there, like how do you get other people to take up that example, right? Um, and I think that's still an open question, obviously, given mm -hmm. our world as we see it today. Mm -hmm. I love that example. I never thought I would be so excited about carpets, but I just think that's such a great example I know, of me how, you know, just being really efficient about your means mm -hmm. and, and framing the story to really, uh, you know, change people's perspective on what's valuable. And oh, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. And they've since done all kinds of other initiatives. They've really taken it to heart. They like go and um, partner with um, rural fisher people who, and they they pay them to actually get all of these nets that they just discard in the ocean, which end up obviously killing a lot of fish. And so they pay them to go and get those nets that are useless to them now, and then they'll turn those into new carpets. So basically it's like everybody wins. The environment gets cleaned up, the fishermen have another um, source of income, and they have material for their carpets. So they, they're really starting to think about it in all kinds of different ways. Like once you start thinking about it in this way, there are so many more opportunities than there are drawbacks. Well, Amina, thank you so much for coming all the way up from L.A. today. Thanks for having me. And um, congratulations on your new book. It was really a pleasure to read through. Thank you very much. appreciate it. And thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.